0: The opinions expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Murderish podcast. Sensitive topics are discussed. Listener discretion is advised. Hey, Ishers. It's Jamie. Welcome to another episode of Murderish. I recently sent out a bunch of merch goodies to Patreon supporters, so hopefully you all have received them. I also want to thank Peach P., Kaylin Z., and Wendy D. for recently becoming Patreon supporters. I appreciate you guys so much. On the topic of Patreon, I recently mailed out our second donation check to the Cold Case Investigative Research Institute, and those funds are coming directly from my Patreon earnings. Again, thank you to all of my Patreon supporters. You're making the donations to CCRI possible. I'm told that the funds we've donated are being used to purchase a DNA extraction kit they're using to try to solve a cold case involving the murder of a child in Georgia. I mentioned previously that I'll be donating a portion of my Patreon earnings to a worthy nonprofit like CCIRI four times a year. As my earnings grow, so will the donations. Okay, let's get into the case we're covering on today's episode. A woman left her home in Florida to pick someone up from the airport. Before she left, the woman provided very specific details to her daughter in the event she didn't return home from her trip. The woman was obviously concerned for her safety, but she went forward anyway. Sadly, the woman's intuition was accurate, and she would never return home. Join me as I walk you through the murder of Darla D. Peed. Us through multiple locations stretching a distance of almost 900 miles. Darla D. Pede lived with her two daughters in Miami, Florida at the time of her murder. Miami, Florida is known to many as a vacation town, a place to go for rest and relaxation when you want a break from the real world. Home to celebrities like Jason Derulo, Oscar Isaac, and Dwayne The Rock Johnson, Miami, Florida might not seem to be the setting for violent crime. However, This case pulls back the curtain on the idyllic scenery that Miami exudes and shows us the horrors that can take place anywhere. On April 1st of 1983, authorities in Camden County, Georgia discovered the dead body of a woman in her early to mid-40s. The woman was discovered with two stab wounds, one in her neck and the other just below her shoulder. Both wounds were very deep. The woman was also found to have a superficial cut on the lower right side of her torso and seemed to have defensive bruising along her hands, wrists, arms, and legs. Just a day earlier, police in Florida, Georgia, and North Carolina had received a call from a woman named Tanya Bullis, claiming that her mother was missing and was possibly with a dangerous person. Tanya let authorities know that her mother had left home to join her estranged husband on a road trip from Miami, Florida to Hillsboro, North Carolina. Tanya told authorities that her mother had not returned home or even contacted her. She reported that she was very worried for her mother's safety. Based on the description Tanya gave authorities and the known locations her mother was driving through, authorities were led to believe and later confirmed that they had just discovered the body of Tanya's mother, Darla D. Peed. On December 9, of 1940, Darla Peed was born to parents Vincent Charles and Joyce Ray Heinrichs in Artesia, California. At age 19, Darla married James Elliot Bullis in 1960. Ten years later, in December of 1970, the couple were divorced. Darla later married Robert Irapeed in 1982. It wouldn't be long before Darla realized the mistake she had made in marrying Robert, and the potential danger in which she unknowingly put herself. Ten months into their marriage, Darla separated from Robert and moved to Florida to live with her daughters from previous relationships, Tanya Bullis and Rebecca Keniston. Robert's criminal history and violent outbursts drove Darla away and served as a warning to her, a warning she would later ignore resulting in her tragic death. Prior to marrying Darla, Robert had been married and divorced twice. In between his divorce from his second wife, Geraldine, and his marriage to Darla, Robert found himself in legal trouble. In 1978, at a bar in California. Robert got into an altercation with two men. This altercation ended when Robert pulled out a gun and fired six shots at the two men. The first victim was shot in the torso and then in the head, which ultimately proved fatal. The second victim, who survived the attack, was shot once in his shoulder. Robert was arrested after this incident and was found guilty of second-degree murder and assault with a deadly weapon. Robert was sentenced to five years in prison for these crimes. The time that he spent in prison was critical and very possibly altered the entire trajectory of his life. While Robert was in prison, he became convinced that his ex-wife, Geraldine, was posing for nude images and advertising herself as a sexual partner in the erotic magazine, Hustlers. Over time, this paranoia grew and turned into rage which eventually developed into a plot to murder his ex-wife and her current boyfriend, Calvin. Robert obsessed over this plot while he waited to be released from prison. After serving three years of his five-year sentence, Robert was released on parole. Despite being estranged from her husband and fearful of his intentions, when Robert called Darla and asked for a ride from the Miami airport back to his home in Hillsborough, North Carolina, Darla strangely obliged. For unknown reasons, she ignored her gut feeling that she may be putting herself in harm's way being around her ex-husband. After talking on the phone with Robert, Darla left her daughter's house for the airport around 5.15 to pick him up. However, what began as a simple road trip home from the airport turned into a nightmare. Unfortunately, Darla would never return home to her daughter's house. Let's face it, we're all living in such a weird time. Groceries are sold out of many items, but I recently found a great solution. Sunbasket delivers delicious and healthy meals right to your doorstep each week. These pre portioned and ready to cook meals can accommodate a variety of diets like paleo, vegetarian, gluten free, and more. I love that Sunbasket sends clean ingredients and organic produce with their meals, and dinner can be ready in about 15 minutes in some cases. My husband can't wait to try Sunbasket's Hoisin Steak Strip Lettuce Cups with pickled decan carrots. Their roasted salmon with miso-glazed eggplant and their black bean tostadas Diablo with cabbage slaw and guacamole are right up my alley. Right now! Sunbasket is offering $35 off your order when you go right now to sunbasket.com/murderish and enter promo code murderish at checkout. That's sunbasket.com/murderish and enter promo code murderish at checkout for $35 off your order. sunbasket.com/murderish and enter promo code murderish Many of us are working from home during this time, and I've heard a lot of people say it's important to stick to a routine. One of the ways to do this is actually to get dressed for work, but you don't have to be uncomfortable. With Beta Brand Dress Pant Yoga Pants, you can dress for work, but feel like you're wearing a pair of yoga pants. Beta Brand's pants fit like a glove, and they don't dig into your sides like other dress pants do. Beta Brand's pants are stylish and totally office appropriate but they feel like you could break into a downward dog yoga pose and not bust a seam. With new styles launched weekly, Betabrand keeps things fresh and there is a style and fit for everyone. Let's be honest, many of us wear yoga pants because they have such good compression and make our bodies look that much better. Betabrand's dress pant yoga pants are no exception, and who doesn't want their butt to look as good as possible? Just saying. Right now, our listeners can get 25% off their first order when you go to betabrand.com slash murderish. That's 25% off your order for a limited time at betabrand.com slash murderish. Find out why women are buying five different pairs of these pants. Go to betabrand.com slash murderish for 25% off. Are you tired of battling through the dreaded pre-period week or struggling with menopause symptoms? It's time to reclaim control with estro control. When I'm not feeling like myself, I'm not able to show up as my best self for my family, my friends, or my podcast team. Tipped off by Darla's daughter, Tanya, authorities seemed to have a pretty good idea of who they needed to investigate first in regard to her mother's murder. After speaking with Tanya further, authorities discovered the extent to which Darla feared her husband, Robert. According to the information Tanya gave to investigators, she was left with very strict instructions when Darla left to pick up her estranged husband. Before she left the house, Darla gave Tanya the license plate number of the car she would be driving and the phone number to the police departments along the route she would be driving. Darla also told her daughter that if she had not heard from her by midnight, she should contact the authorities and report her as missing. Tanya let authorities know that Darla was fearful of Robert and was nervous about what he might do to her while she was alone with him. After talking to many different parties, including Darla's two daughters and Robert's former wife, Geraldine, police decided they had a pretty good idea who their prime suspect would be. Prior to Robert contacting Darla to ask for a ride home from the airport, Geraldine had filed charges against her ex-husband for trespassing and harassment. Due to these charges, authorities were sent to Robert I. Rapide's house on April 2, 1983, to arrest him. When police arrived at Robert's residence to make the arrest, he was found with two loaded shotguns by the door and Darla's 1971 Buick, the back seat stained with blood. Based on what was found at Robert's home and the amount of information collected from various sources, it was clear to authorities that the trespassing and harassment charges were the least serious of the multiple crimes likely committed by Robert. Authorities immediately took Robert into custody and questioned him extensively. On May 25 of 1983, Robert Ira Pied was indicted on charges of murder in the first degree for allegedly killing his ex-wife, Darla. A few days later, Robert pleaded not guilty and preparation for the trial began. On February 10 of 1984, Robert Peed went on trial in Orange County, Florida presiding over the trial was Judge Seismanik. The team of prosecutors consisted of Jim Smith and Sean Daly. Theotis Bronson and Joseph DeRoker led the defense for Robert Peed. The defense team would have their work cut out for them. While in custody, Robert gave investigators exactly what they needed to have this case closed quickly. Eleven months after Darla D. Pied's death, Robert Peed went on trial for her murder. On February 10th of 1984, the team of prosecutors started off strong, presenting information Robert had volunteered while being interrogated. In fact, while in custody, Robert had given investigators a full, detailed confession. In addition, the suspect also gave them a written and signed confession, although it was brief. Robert's confession would be difficult for the defense to navigate around. The written confession reads as follows. My name is Robert Peed. On March 31, 1983, I killed my wife Darla by stabbing her in the neck with a Puma folding knife. This occurred on Highway 4, about six miles east of Orlando, Florida, in the back seat of Darla's 71 Buick. I ask for the death penalty in this crime to be carried out as soon as possible. Signed, Robert P. Date of Birth, June 30, 1944. Although brief, Robert's confession provided crucial insight into Darla's murder. In it was information that coincided with the wounds found on her body. In his confession, Robert also requested to be put to death for the crime. Both the defense and the prosecution teams would use the details of Robert's confession to argue their sides. The timeline of Darla's murder that follows is from Robert's confession to authorities. These are the details that were used by both the defense and the prosecution to build their cases. While some of the details can be verified, other details are only assumed to be true based on Robert's initial full compliance with law enforcement. Some of the details in Robert's confession were later disproved by experts. According to Robert, he had been trying to get in touch with his estranged wife the morning of March 31st, 1983. He had driven his motorcycle from his home in Hillsboro, North Carolina, all the way to Jacksonville, Florida. When he reached Jacksonville, Robert sold his motorcycle in order to buy a flight from Jacksonville to Miami, Florida. He was attempting to get in touch with Darla to convince her to drive him back to his home in Hillsboro. This car ride with Darla, however, was only part of his plot to murder his other ex-wife, Geraldine, and her boyfriend, Calvin. Robert intended only to use Darla as bait. Eventually, he got Darla to agree to pick him up from the airport, setting his dark plan into motion. Darla picked Robert up from the airport without incident, however, while driving to their North Carolina destination Darla took the wrong exit and ended up heading more north than planned. At first, the ride seemed to be going well, but that would not last. Just as Robert had convinced himself that his second ex-wife, Geraldine, was posing nude and advertising herself in a magazine, he was now paranoid that Darla was doing the same thing. Thoughts of Darla soliciting herself to other men through a magazine raced through Robert's head. While driving, the song Swinging by John Anderson came on the radio. The song seemed to trigger Robert, reminding him of what he believed about both Geraldine and Darla. He became agitated. At this point, Robert took out his puma hunting knife and cut Darla along her side. The cut, however, was only superficial. Even though Robert had just injured his ex-wife with a knife, The two of them apparently continued on their trip as normal. At one point, Robert and Darla stopped to pick up a hitchhiker. According to his confession, Robert had the hitchhiker drive while he and Darla moved to the back seat to make love. Whether their sexual encounter was lovemaking or assault is up for debate. According to Robert, when Darla, the hitchhiker, and he made it to Orlando, the hitchhiker was dropped off. Alone again in the car and driving toward Dayton, Florida on Interstate 95, Robert once again brought up the conversation about his suspicions of Darla and Geraldine. The conversation would not end well. Robert grew more angered and agitated than before and became more physically violent with Darla, who was sitting in the back seat of the car. Enraged, he pulled the car onto the side of Interstate 4 and jumped into the back seat of the car where Darla was sitting. He then pulled out the same knife as before and stabbed Darla deep in the throat. This time, Darla's wound was not superficial. The stab wound to her throat extended all the way down into her chest and once more below her shoulder. These wounds proved fatal. Darla DP'd blood to death within a time frame of about 5 to 15 minutes. After he murdered Darla, Robert continued driving from just outside of Orlando all the way to Camden County, Georgia. The drive was more than 170 miles and took over two and a half hours to complete. The entire time Robert was making this trip, his dead wife was laying in the back seat, soaked in her own blood. Once he reached Camden County, Georgia, Robert removed Darla's body and hid it in the woods just off the interstate. Intent on finishing his plan, Robert got back into Darla's 71 Buick and continued on toward Hillsboro, North Carolina, determined to murder his ex-wife Geraldine and her boyfriend, Calvin. On his way there. Robert threw his knife out the window of the car, ridding himself of the murder weapon. The rest of the trip was uneventful, and Robert was later arrested at his home on April 2nd before he could reach Geraldine and Calvin. This is the extent of what was told to investigators by Robert. The entirety of the court case would be held within the bounds of this confession, making it the single most important piece of evidence for both sides of the case. When I listen to True Crime, it's interesting to hear how the layers of the case unfold. That's kind of how I feel when I play Best Fiends, a puzzle game I've been playing for a while now. The game gets a little harder as you move forward, so I've had to switch up my strategy a few times. I love all of the fun characters I get to collect along the way, and the game is designed beautifully. My favorite time to play is when I'm in need of a quick escape. Best Fiends helps me decompress after a long day. They keep things fresh by introducing new themed challenges every month. Best Fiends has thousands of levels already, with new levels, events, and characters added every month. It's hours of fun right at your fingertips and you can even play offline. With over 100 million downloads and tons of 5-star reviews, Best Fiends is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R, best fiends. Here's one more thing to do with your commute or quarantine if you're staying at home as the case may be under the current circumstances. True Crime SS podcast is a podcast about a serial killer, but it's not really about the serial killer. A group of investigators analyzed the missing persons cases from 1996 to 2010 and the interviews of Israel Keys, who was captured in 2012 and killed himself before revealing most of his crimes. Investigators say they have pieced together not just a list of his probable, but also the likely resting places. They say they know where the bodies are buried. It'll be interesting to see if the season finale lives up to the promises the hosts are making. And they're going to reveal something that goes beyond this particular killer and that the cases attached to him might change the genre of true crime as we know it. You can find True Crime XS on your favorite podcast service, including Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and more. Just search for True Crime XS, download and listen today. In order to defend Robert, who had already submitted a signed confession, admitting to the murder and asking for the death penalty, the defense had to argue that the murder was not cold, calculated, and premeditated in order to avoid a conviction for first-degree murder. Instead, the defense alleged that Robert acted out of an uncontrollable rage and paranoia and that his actions could not be stopped due to his state of mind. One detail that the defense focused on was Darla's willingness to pick up Robert from the airport and drive him back to North Carolina. Surely, the defense argued, someone scared for their life would not voluntarily pick up a person by whom they felt threatened. Darla was cautious in her decision to pick him up, and even went so far as to provide specific information to her daughter in the event she did not return home from the trip. Even with that, the defense argued, there was no way Darla could have believed that Robert would actually hurt her. The defense established that Robert had not previously given Darla anything to worry about and therefore could not have been violent enough to premeditate an attack on his wife. The defense also presented the lovemaking that Robert recounted in his confession. The fact that Robert and Darla had a sexual encounter prior to her murder was used by the defense to build a narrative that Robert and Darla were attempting to get back together. The defense asked the question if Robert was wanting to reestablish a relationship with his wife, why would he have planned to kill her prior to this happening? The defense also argued that Robert only became violent when a song came on the radio that triggered his paranoia, the first instance of Robert being violent occurs. However, the defense argued, the defendant calmed down fairly quickly. The defense said he became upset once more, but only after the conversation went back to what his current and former wives were doing behind his back. According to the defense, this should prove that Robert was only violent when his paranoia and fear were triggered. To back up their assertions, the defense called on Dr. Robert Strickland, a psychologist, to help explain why Robert acted the way he did. Dr. Strickland testified that it was evident, based on his interviews with Robert Peed, that he had acted out of an overflow of uncontrollable emotion. His actions were neither deliberate nor premeditated, he testified. To add to this, Dr. Strickland also mentioned that at the time of Darla's murder, Robert had gone without sleep for two days, and because of this, he was under intense emotional disturbance. The last point the defense used to try to sway the jury was in reference to Robert's actual pre-planned murder. Robert's plan to murder Geraldine and Calvin relied heavily on using Darla as a means to get the couple over to Robert's house. If Darla was such an integral part of Robert's plan, there is no reason he would kill her before killing Geraldine and Calvin unless it was during a period of uncontrollable rage, according to the defense. Killing Darla got rid of his bait before it could be used. Therefore, the defense argued, it's clear that killing Darla was not planned. The prosecution alleged that it was obvious Robert had planned out the murder of Darla well in advance. The prosecution called for the testimonies of Darla's two daughters, Tanya Bullis and Rebecca Keniston, to affirm this and build the case that Darla's murder was pre-planned. Tanya recalled for the court the night her mother left to pick Robert up from the airport. Robert had reportedly called Tanya's home multiple times asking to speak with Darla. When he got a hold of her and convinced her to pick him up, Darla's demeanor seemed to change. Darla spoke to Tanya before she left and gave her very strict instructions on what to do if she was not home by midnight. Tanya said that her mother gave her the license plate of her 71 Buick, the number of the local authorities along the route they would be driving, and even gave her Robert's ex-wife's phone number. Tanya said that Darla told her that if she had not gotten into contact with her by midnight, she needed to call the cops and tell them she was missing and that she was with a dangerous man. According to Tanya's testimony, Darla's actions and demeanor showed just how scared of Robert she was and clearly showed how violent and dangerous he could be. According to her testimony, Tanya said that if her mother was harmed, there is no way it was accidental. Darla's other daughter, Rebecca Keniston, testified that her mother knew of Robert's plan to kill Geraldine and Calvin, and Darla had reportedly confided in Rebecca that she was scared she would be killed as well for unknown reasons despite her gut feeling about robert darla still picked him up from the airport a fact the defense focused on in their attempt to dispel some of the aggravating conditions surrounding darla's murder in robert's confession he said that he and darla made love in the back seat of the car while an unnamed hitchhiker was driving The prosecution called to the stand the medical examiner who performed Darla's autopsy to speak about the injuries found on her body. According to the medical examiner, aside from the two stab wounds that ultimately led to Darla bleeding to death, she also had defensive wounds on her arms and legs. These wounds indicated to the medical examiner that the sexual encounter Robert spoke of was not a consensual act and, in fact, it would appear that Darla had tried to fight Robert off. In response to defense witness Dr. Robert Strickland, the psychologist who interviewed Robert, the prosecution began tearing apart his credibility. The prosecution described for the jury the brevity in which Dr. Strickland had met Robert. The two had spent time together only twice and the amount of time spent totaled just under two hours. The prosecution argued that surely this was not enough time to determine one's true emotional state at any point. Aside from Robert's decision to plead not guilty after providing a confession, admitting guilt, and requesting the death penalty, Robert's behavior during the trial got even stranger. As early as the juror selection phase, Robert asked to be excused from his own trial. At first. His request was denied by the judge, who decided that Robert's presence was imperative. The judge further stated that the reason he gave for not attending his own trial, which appeared to be that he just wasn't interested in being present, was not a good enough reason for him to be absent from the trial. There were several other instances of Robert asking to be excused from the trial, however. All sides held that it was in Robert's best interest if he stayed present throughout the trial. Robert's requests were again denied. During the time his former wife, Geraldine, was on the witness stand, Robert began creating a disturbance, causing an uproar in the courtroom. At the onset of his outburst, Robert was removed from the courtroom for the remainder of Geraldine's testimony. After her testimony was finished, Robert was escorted back into the courtroom and was able to remain there until the court broke for lunch. Once again, Robert asked if he could be excused from his trial, and once again he was denied. After the lunch recess was over, Robert's counsel advised the court that the defendant was refusing to return to the courtroom. In fact, Robert had told his counsel that he would physically resist being brought back in for the remainder of the hearing. At this time, the court took another recess, deciding that it was time to deal with Robert's determination not to be present in the courtroom. The court reporter, Robert's counsel, and other participants of the trial went down to the county jail to further discuss the possibility of Robert being excused from trial. Robert was extensively questioned regarding his reasoning for not wanting to be present. Robert was educated to ensure he fully understood what it meant if he wasn't present during his trial. Robert, who was found to be free from illness and fully aware of what his lack of presence would mean, was finally allowed to be absent from the courtroom while the trial progressed. The court's decision to allow Robert to remain absent from his trial reads as follows. I'm satisfied that his decision not to be present for further proceedings in this case is a consideration or decision that's made after weighing the consequences. It's a free and voluntary decision on his part, and it's not prompted by any illness that he may have or any outside factors being exerted upon him. He has indicated he does realize the trial will go forward without his presence, and he does understand that. Mr. P does realize that his attorneys will continue acting on his behalf during these proceedings. After Robert's departure from trial, the hearing continued without incident. Prosecutors built the case that Robert planned out Darla's murder, kidnapped and killed her, and then dumped her on the side of the road. They argued that his actions were full of malicious intent, and not out of an overflow of rage and paranoia. Robert's defense asserted that Darla was a willing participant in picking him up from the airport, driving him to his home in North Carolina and even in the lovemaking, as told in Robert's confession. After hearing from both sides, the court seemed unsure of where the jury would fall. On one hand, it was clear that Robert had murdered his wife. On the other hand, the question was being asked was going for murder in the first degree too much. Once the week-long trial was over, jurors began deliberating. After only 20 minutes of discussion, they had a decision. Robert Peed was brought back into the courtroom to face his verdict. On February seventeenth of nineteen eighty-four, the jury found Robert Ira Peed guilty of first-degree murder for brutally stabbing and killing his estranged wife, Darla D. Peed. On March fifth of nineteen eighty-four. Robert Pede was sentenced for his crime. By a vote of 11 to 1, the jury recommended death by electric chair. According to a March 7, 1984 article in the Palm Beach Post, Robert Pede smiled after hearing the verdict and said to the judge, the jury came back with the recommendation that my wife would have come back with, and on her behalf, I thank them. Judge Seismanick, someone known for avoiding sentencing individuals to death, delivered his first death sentence to Robert Irapede. Despite his initial smugness, after formal sentencing, Robert's demeanor changed drastically. According to an article in the March 7, 1984 edition of the Palm Beach Post, as he was escorted out of the courtroom by armed guards, Robert was recorded as saying, send me a good appeal lawyer, they convicted me of something I'm not guilty of. Since his sentencing in 1984, Robert has filed a multitude of appeals. Because of this, he was granted a stay of execution, which halted his death sentence until all appeals, petitions, and motions could be rectified and closed. On April 5th of 1984, exactly 1 month after his sentencing, Robert Pede filed a direct appeal to the Florida Supreme Court. His appeal dealt with multiple issues. The first and main issue addressed in the appeal was his belief that Judge Seismanek should not have allowed him to excuse himself from the trial, especially one where capital punishment was on the line. In response to this claim, the court called to attention the in-depth and well-documented conversation Robert had with the court about his decision to remove himself from trial. The court also referenced the freedom that a defendant has to either be present or not be present at their own trial. Due to these factors and others, the court ruled that Robert Peed knowingly and voluntarily absented himself from the trial. And therefore, found no misconduct on Judge Seismanik's decision to allow him to be absent. Robert's appeal was successful in getting one decision overturned. His appeal claimed that there was not enough evidence to prove that Darla's murder was premeditated, and the court agreed. However, the court also agreed that this change in degree did not carry enough weight to change the sentencing Robert was originally given. Because of this, no prior court decision or sentencing was reversed. On August 8th of 1985, the court reaffirmed Robert's conviction and sentencing, and no retrial was granted. There have been many other petitions for higher courts to review this case. However, any investigation into the trial and conviction has yet to overturn the decision made by the initial court. As of today... Robert, I repeat, is still on Florida's death row and is awaiting execution. Thanks again for joining me on this episode of Murderish. If you'd like to get more info about the show or me, go to Murderish.com. On the website, you can sign up to support Murderish through Patreon and have some of your dollars donated to the Cold Case Investigative Research Institute. The website also has a link to buy Murderish t-shirts and other merchandise. That's Murderish.com. If you want to connect on social media, head over to the Murderish Facebook discussion group. You can also find me on Twitter at MurderishPod and on Instagram at MurderishPodcast. If you like the show, hit the subscribe button wherever you're listening now and tell a friend about the show. I'd love for you to leave the show a review in your favorite podcast app. Murderish is mixed and mastered by John and Jessica Buchanis of Audio Editing Solutions. Music is by Nico of We Talk of Dreams. This episode was researched and written by Lincoln Edgeman. In order to tell true crime stories on the show, information is gathered from various sources which sometimes include news articles, newspaper archives, blogs, social media, TV productions, police reports, court records, books, magazine articles, direct interviews, and more. I recognize that often someone before me put in a lot of time and effort to gather information I draw from to help tell these stories. Thank you to those individuals for their hard work. Sources for this episode can be found at Murderish.com. As always, Ishers, Thank you for joining me on another episode of Murderish, and remember, listening to this podcast doesn't make you a murderer, it just means you're murder-ish.